All right, let's open in prayer. Lord, we're always grateful for your word. It builds us up. It edifies us. And we're thankful that missionaries have carried it out, carried it all the way to our soil here today. A land that once did not have the gospel now has the gospel. And we're grateful that we could plant a church here. And we pray that we might help other missionaries be sent out around the world and take the gospel to places that it's not well known. And so we pray, Lord, that it might move us to learn of these men from the past who did that very thing. Help us, Lord, to grow in the faith. Amen. We've been looking at the modern missionary movement. We'll finish that today and then move into some really bad guys. We're talking about the good guys to start with, but we'll finish probably with some bad guys. And then hopefully we'll get done with that and maybe move into the 1900s with the fundamentalist modernist controversy. But we'll see. Y'all let me know if I'm going too fast today because I'm going to go through a lot. William Carey. He's known as the father of modern missions. And I had a good question, I think it was yesterday, at the men's leadership afterwards or during fellowship. At the time we were up here, someone was asking about missionaries previous to this. And, and there were missionaries previous. We've covered some of them, but not all of them. There's many that were sent out. Somebody was mentioning the Dutch were sent to Japan. Who was that? Was that you, Shane? Yeah. Dutch missionaries sent to Japan, which I didn't know anything about. So I'll have to read up on that. But the first main missionary, William Carey, the father of modern missions, is called that because he sent by a group of churches to an area and supported and kept there. And then that starts a movement of sending people around the world to pagan tribes, and mainly in the southern hemisphere. And so we have William Carey, who's known as the father of modern missions. He helped found the Baptist Missionary Society. And he was of the particular or Calvinistic Baptist. He was originally a shoemaker by trade. He taught himself Greek, Hebrew, and a number of other languages. So God had blessed him with a desire and an ability to work with the languages. And he's doing that as he's working, as he's running his business as a shoemaker. He's raised in the Church of England, but he eventually joins those who dissented from England, did not agree with the Anglican Church and the way they did their worship. And later, as he's moving away from that, he's convinced of believer's baptism. And so he is joining the particular Baptist, the Calvinistic Baptist, which is the majority in the 1600s, 1700s. So here's an engraving of him. Looks like he's working in another language here. And that would be helpful to him. Early missionaries like this were not just set on planting churches, but translating the Bible into the languages of the people. They knew there had to be a church after, the, of course, people were evangelized and, and disciples were made. There had to be a church and there had to be a Bible. In 1781, he marries Dorothy. He had six children with her. Only three of those would survive into adulthood. The same year, his friend Andrew Fuller had written a, a pamphlet. And it was a pamphlet against the hyper-Calvinists in his Baptist denomination. And Fuller, the title of it was, the gospel worthy of all acceptation. Not the easiest to understand title today. But it countered the, the anti-evangelism of the Calvinists of that time. People, people today often say, well, Calvinists, you know, you, they don't evangelize. They don't care about missions. They believe in election. God's going to do it all. Well, that's not true. But there was a sense of hyper-Calvinism that had infected a lot of Baptist churches at this time. And so their attitude was generally, hey, if God wants to save somebody, they'll walk in the door on Sunday. Yeah, we're all about evangelism as long as they walk in the door. 
then God has you know, brought them here for a purpose. He's predestined them. And Fuller says that's wrong. The gospel is worthy and should be preached to all people. And people will accept it based on what God is doing in their heart. And if he's called them, but it ought to be preached to all people, including the pagans around the world. So Kerry reads that and is influenced by that. He's also influenced by Jonathan Edwards' account. Remember the life of David Brainerd? And Edwards was so moved by Brainerd's missionary efforts that he publishes his diary. And then later, Edwards goes to be a missionary like Brainerd. So he's reading that in 1785. He's deeply affected by it. As a result, he becomes very concerned about taking the gospel to other parts of the world. And in 89, 1789, he decides he's giving up the shoe trade. He's going to become a full-time pastor. And he begins by pastoring a small church there in England. In 92, he writes his own work, An Inquiry into the Obligations of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of the Heathen. Because the, the Calvinists, hyper-Calvinists, were saying this is all about God bringing them to us. And Kerry argues God does elect, God does predestine, that's in the Bible, but he uses means, he uses us, he uses people that are Christians that are sent out by churches to evangelize and to plant churches, and that's right. So he, his book had five parts. He explains the Great Commission intended for all believers, not just the apostles. So it was popular in this day to say the Great Commission is only applied to the apostles. They were to take the gospel out. And then after the apostles, it doesn't apply to the church in general. Secondly, he said he gave a brief history of missions up to his time. So he acknowledged the missionaries who went before him. He gave an overview of the need for the gospel around the world. Fourthly, it answered common objections to missionary work. People weren't willing to support it with their money because they didn't believe in it. And so he answers that objection, and he called for the organization of a missionary society. If missionaries were sent before, it was by a single church. Now it's getting organized into a society that people can give their efforts to, their money. That same year, he preaches a famous sermon from Isaiah 54, in which he said, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. So expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. The slogan would become an inspiration to generations of missionaries to come. Today, if I read this, I might think that's a little seeker-friendly. But given the context of, how, of, of what he said, when he said it, how he said it, I understand what he's saying. Expect that God's going to save his elect out there. And he even said, based on the passage in Revelation 5, that he knew he would succeed as he went to another nation, as he went to India to take the gospel. He knew he would succeed because Revelation 5 teaches there will be people saved from out of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. So he knew there were people out there. He just needed to go and take the gospel to them. The name of the society is the particular Baptist Society for the Propagation of the Gospel Amongst the Heathen. It's a good Puritanic type of title. Now we shorten sentences and titles down. But this is a good long title for their organization. It would later just be known as the Baptist Missionary Society. In 1793, his oldest son and his wife left for India, along with another missionary named Dr. John Thomas. Carrie's wife, Dorothy, was pregnant with their fourth child. Several years later, when one of his sons dies of dysentery, Dorothy suffers a nervous breakdown. She never fully recovers from that. So they're going now, and you're going to hear about these missionaries. They, they suffer great losses. 
often due to disease with their children and their wives dying. For the first six years, Carrie helped to manage an indigo factory. So he had to work. He had to help make money for his family. It wasn't just show up and there's Christians all around to join the church. There were no Christians. So he helped manage an indigo factory, which was run by the British. And he could bring in money for his family. And he had a few other Christians through the British Empire that were there. And he was able at that time to revise the Bengali New Testament. So he is putting the Bible into the language that they can understand. The year after Dorothy died, 1807, Carey remarries to Charlotte. A printing press is then established there. He produces copies of the Bible in Bengali and Sanskrit, a couple of the languages spoken there. A fire in 1812 destroys many of his documents. Much of his work had been lost. But the press itself is saved, so he's able to keep on printing out Bibles. Six months later, the same year, he begins to encourage American Baptists to support the work. So before this, it was an English particular Baptist movement. Now he's reaching out and asking help from the American Baptists as well. And Adoniram Judson will be encouraged by that to later go to Burma. We'll talk about him next. This is going to lead to the establishment of the General Missionary Convention of Baptist Denomination in the U.S. It's not around today, but it was there in 1814 when they started. Four years later, 1818, the mission established a training school for pastors. It also provided general education. So this is the, the mission in India with William Carey. He's now training pastors there in India, regardless of where they come from. In India, the, there's, a, there's a caste system, and you can only... You know, go to school if you're of a higher class. And even the poorest people who were converted, the poorest men converted who showed help or showed hope in becoming a pastor could come and get help from the seminary. Now, a second wife dies in 21. His oldest son, Felix, dies. Two years later, he marries again for the third time to Grace. In 1825, he completes his English Bengali dictionary. So he didn't just translate it but he has a dictionary now that he's put together to help others to understand the words and continue on with that work. He dies in June, on June 9th, 1834, having given his life to the cause of Christ in India. He had a great influence on the cause of missions in the 19th century. Even today, English Protestant Christians look back to William Carey, and they understand he's their founding father, essentially, of Christianity in India. There were missionaries that had gone before, even in the early, early times, but they, it never lasted. They always got persecuted, and after a few generations, it faded out. It will be established because of William Carey, and even today, they'll acknowledge that. There's even a church there on the grounds of where he established his first church, and it's called William Carey Baptist Church. Adoniram Judson, Adoniram Judson, be sure to name your next son that, Adoniram. The son of a pastor, he's born in America. Judson's conversion story is very dramatic. According to John Piper, this comes up in the book, Don't Waste Your Life. He explains the story well. Judson is 16. He enters Rhode Island College, later becomes Brown University. He enters there. He's a sophomore there. Uh, he, he enters as a sophomore. He graduates at the top of his class in 1807. In spite of his brilliance, though, he was lured away from his childhood faith by other students, particularly a friend named Jacob Ames, who was a deist. Deism is very popular in the early 1800s in, in Britain and in America. And so this idea that believe in God, 
but he's just a general God. He created the world and he stepped back and let the world run. This is what most Americans believe today who say they believe in God, but they're actually not Christian. They are deists. They believe in doing good and they believe that there's a creator, but that's about it. By the time Judson's college career was finished, he had no Christian faith at all. On his 20th birthday, he told his parents that he was no longer a Christian and that broke their hearts because his dad was a pastor. He understood the implications of that. Here's Adoniram Judson when he's a little older. Six days later, he goes to New York for his graduation to work as a playwright. His new career did not fulfill him. God was closing in on him, pushing him out of that career. And then one night as he was traveling, he stays in a small village. And he's just passing through town. He stays in a village. John Piper explains what happened there. The innkeeper apologized that his sleep last night might have been interrupted. There was a man critically ill in the next room. Through the night, Judson heard comings and goings and low voices and groans and gasps. It bothered him to think that the man next to him may not be prepared to die. He wondered about himself and had terrible thoughts of his own dying. He felt foolish because good deists weren't supposed to worry. They weren't supposed to have these struggles. They weren't supposed to have thoughts about the afterlife. You just believe in a God in general, and that was enough. When he was leaving in the morning, he asked the man next door if the man next door was better. The innkeeper said, he is dead. Judson was struck with the finality of it all. On his way out, he said, do you know who he was? And the young man from the college in Providence, his friend, Jacob Ames, was who died. So that the providence of God puts Adoniram Judson traveling through, staying in an inn, the same place his old college friend who led him away from the faith is dying. And he does actually die. So this shocked him. This changed his life. He could hardly move. The friend who had convinced him to reject Christianity was now dead. This is according to Piper's account here. According to deism, this was a meaningless event. But Judson knew better. And God used this event to bring Adoniram Judson back to himself. In 1809, Judson decided to become a missionary. He was a Congregationalist at the time, but he would become a Baptist during the voyage over there to be a missionary to India, based on the fact that he could not find infant baptism in Scripture. He and his wife Anne arrived in Calcutta in 1812. They were baptized there by an associate of William Carey. So he's on the boat. It's going to take weeks to get there. He's reading his Bible. He doesn't see infant baptism converts, gets baptized. He's on the mission field as he gets baptized in the believer's baptism. Due to the resistance that the British East India Company had been putting on missionaries there, they leave India. The British East India Company made a lot of money in trade, and missionaries were disrupting some of that. They were causing problems. The British East India Company did not like missionaries in India, so he goes to Burma. Upon arriving there in 1813, he gave himself immediately to study the language. That's important. Study the language. It took several years of intense study due to its radical differences from Western languages. Anybody studied any language? Burmese? Is it Burmese? No Burmese? Any Indian dialects? Okay. Where's Miles? No, no Indian dialects, Miles? Come on. You got to get more languages. It took several years of intense study. Though he baptized his first convert in 1819, the initial progress was very slow. Most of these missionaries, it's very slow. Nowadays, people come back, you know, I had 2,000 converts in my first week, and you don't even know if they're, they're telling the truth. Back then, and I think this is actually the case today too, it's a slow work where there is no Christians. It's a slow work. 
And I think many missionaries today would give up if it took six years to see the first convert. And even after that, it's very slow. The Buddhist worldview of the Burmese people made them react with relative indifference to the gospel. Also, the Burmese emperor threatened the death penalty for anyone who changed religions. By 1822, there were 18 converts. He's been there nine years, 18 converts. Or ten, yeah, nine or ten years, 18, that's it. In 1823, he completes his translation into Burmese of the New Testament. Several years before this, a printing press had been sent from William Carey there, and they were able to start printing that out. War breaks out between the Burmese and the British in 1824. So Judson gets arrested by the Burmese because they think he's a traitor since he's American and is probably working for the British, they think. They put him in prison, calling him a spy. He's there for over a year. He's experiencing the harsh torture that happens in prison. Eventually he's released. He doesn't die in prison like many of the prisoners would have at that time. He's released. Shortly after that, his wife dies. Her death sent him into a long depression. Her letters about their missionary work when published in the U.S. moved many to either join or support missions. We have a biography on Anne, Anne Judson in the bookstore. It's a great biography. It gives you a lot of insight into their life. And I think it even has the letter in there that her husband wrote to her father and when he was asking for her hand. And the, the father didn't want to let his daughter marry a missionary. She was just going to go there and be killed by the natives. And he says, you know, that might happen. But all of us are going to die at some point. Better to die giving ourselves for the gospel. And eventually the, the father lets his daughter Anne marry, marry him. In 1834, he finished his translation of the whole Burmese Bible. It was published in 35. The missionary work that he had begun with some momentum, especially among the animistic tribal groups is now growing. In 1835, he gets remarried to Sarah. She dies 10 years later. Judson's going to remarry a third time and 46 to Emily. He dies in 1850 at the age of 61. In all, he'd given 37 years of his life to work in Burma with only one furlough back to the U.S. He's not coming back every year, every two years. One time he came back. Read biographies on these people. I'm just rushing through their life summary here. The best is to see it in their own words. When he dies, there's over 8,000 converts in Burma. It's very slow work. The first 9 or 10 years, he only sees a few converts. By the time he dies, there's 8,000 Christians there. A hundred churches had been planted. His most enduring legacy was the translation of the Bible. When people say, you know, Calvinists don't care about evangelism, they don't care about missions. Well, you can just take them back to the very first international missionaries sent by Calvinistic churches, and you will see that's not the case. And even today, it's not the case. In 1993, the head, this is a more recent quote here, a head of the Myanmar Evangelical Fellowship says, today there are six million Christians in Myanmar, and every one of us trace our spiritual heritage to one man, Reverend Adoniram Judson. So Burma becomes Myanmar, later changes their name. But he credits the six million Christians there, to this one man who took the gospel there. Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor. All these guys are my favorites. There's more than this. We're covering the big three. Again, pick up missionary books. Read the other ones that we don't have time to cover. Read about them. Hudson Taylor, his father was a Methodist. 
He is a, a young man who rejects the faith that he's been taught. He, it wasn't until he read an evangelistic track at the age of 17 that he was saved. After that, he, he determines to become a missionary. And he was very determined. He was godly stubborn, if you want to put it that way. In 1853, he studies medicine in London in order to be able to use those skills as he goes on the field. He had already been studying the biblical languages in addition to Mandarin Chinese. He arrives in Shanghai in 54, and after unsuccessful attempts at evangelism were made, determined to adopt the style and dress of the Chinese people. As a result, he was able to gain an audience with the people. This was new. Most people who went from their country, like William Carey or Adoniram Judson, expected the converts to be different from the locals, dressed more like a British or American person might, to adopt some of the Christian culture that had developed in the West. Hudson Taylor said, these people aren't listening to me because they see me as a as a Westerner, they see me as a British person come here to change them. So he just starts dressing as a Chinese man. He grows his beard long, his fingernails, all that stuff. Suddenly, they'll listen to him. And a lot of people back in, in Britain and America laughed at him for that. They said he was becoming a heathen just because he changed his clothing. But this had a great effect on the, the Chinese people that he was preaching to. Here he is as a young man. And there he is, a little bit older there. He eventually does. I tried to find a picture with his Chinese attire. And they're out there. They're just very low quality. So I wasn't able to put it on the slide without it being blurry. Before leaving for China, Taylor had made connections with some of the Plymouth Brethren. This was a group that had been growing. A group of brethren. A group of congregational-like churches who were premillennial and were teaching on the rapture. They're in Britain. And then while he's on the field, He's also supported by men like George, George Mueller of Bristol. Hudson Taylor is known, he's really famous for not accepting, or not asking, not asking for any money. He accepted money, he didn't ask for it. He didn't come back to the, to the churches and say, give me money to support my mission. He just went and he told people what he's doing and he preached. And then they gave him money. And he always said God would provide. Expect big things from God. In 1858, he marries Maria Jane Dyer. In 1860, for health reasons, the Taylors come back to England on furlough. During his time there, he focused on Bible translation. He's preaching in many churches. He completes the New Testament. Also established in 1860 a new mission society called the China Inland Mission. And this mission will continue all the way up until communism takes over China, kicks them out. They're still in existence today, but they're not officially operating in China today. In 1866, the family returns to China. Their work with the newly formed uh, China Inland Mission was difficult. They were subject to criticism from both the Chinese and from the British back home. So the British are saying, you're doing missions wrong. You shouldn't dress like them. You shouldn't eat, act like them. The, the Chinese people say, I don't want to hear this new religion. We have this ancestor worship. We have uh, Confucianism. We have all of these other beliefs. Quit trying to change our culture, our tradition. His wife dies in 1870. That had an immense impact on him. He returns to England the next year when his own health began to fail. While in England, his second time, he remarries to Jane. The couple goes back to China. They had to come back two years later, though. Two years later, he goes back to China after that without his family. And eventually, his wife will join him. So there's this back and forth due to health reasons. And you can understand why, especially with so many wives and children dying in some of these countries. During this time in China, he sets up a number of missionary outposts. By 1881, 
The mission there had 100 missionaries working in China. And there's a famous story around that where he says, I'm going to have 100 missionaries by this time next year. And people laughed at him. And missionaries said, you know, he, he was a fool. He shouldn't say such things. And he said, you just wait and see. One day they're going to step off the boat. And if you live long enough, you old man that's criticizing me, you'll see it happen. And sure enough, he had 101 or some, some almost very specific number like that step off the boat a year later. He recruited another 102 in 1887. In 88, he traveled to the U.S. He was befriended and supported by D.L. Moody, C.L. Schofield, two men who were preaching the Bible and teaching the Bible quite a bit in the U.S. We don't have time to really talk about their ministries, but they were very influential. A number of American missionaries went to China and joined his mission there. In 1900, the Boxer Rebellion really hurt those missions and missionaries there. Over 50 of the missionaries were killed in China. He responded in a Christ-like way, though, towards the Chinese people, gained respect of the Chinese population. In 1905, he took his very last trip there and died while he was there. His life inspired future missionaries like Eric Little and Jim Elliott. I really like Hudson Taylor's biography. We've got a couple of, of books here on him. I did a paper on him in high school. Call, I'm sorry, seminary, high school. Seminary. I was much older than high school age by the time I got to seminary. I really loved Hudson Taylor's story. He relied on prayer. He was known as a man of prayer. It's called the secret life of Hudson Taylor, his prayer life, his private prayer life. And his children would, would publish that story in books and make it famous. So here's a book by Vance Christie, Gospel Pioneer to China. Great book. I recommend it. It's really a small biography. Also, The Missionary Fellowship of William Carey by Michael Haken covers the life of Carey. And Haken studied the, the Calvinistic Baptist of the 1700s. And so he's a man qualified to write that. Also, for, for kids, there are these sets of books. We have very various ones. Here's one, though, that covers Adoniram Judson and Hudson Taylor. Another man, John G. Patton, you should read about him. We don't have time to go into him. But he goes to the island of Vanuatu where they eat people. They're cannibals and really suffers and his family suffers. And so you can read about them as well as others. Also, I encourage you to pick up John Piper's set of books, either individually or the whole set. And he covers many of these men that we've been talking about in church history, going all the way back to Athanasius and Augustine. And he usually will mix it in. There'll be three or four per book. Or you can just pick up the, the whole thing that was published a few years ago with all 21 of them. Great biographies and written with zeal of John Piper. All right, let's talk about the bad guys. These are bad guys. There are lots of bad guys in church history. These are going to have an effect more, I think, today than some of the ones we've talked about before. I mean, it's one, one thing to talk about Arius and Pelagius. Yeah, those guys put in writing things that are going to be picked up later in church history. But it's men like this who really undermine what is going on in the post-Reformation period. So let's survey some of them. And they're pretty much all German. And you will hear about the German higher critics. And if you ever pick up a commentary, they'll either mention that or they'll spend half the commentary interacting and trying to disprove what their German higher critics were saying. And some evangelical conservative Christians, seminaries, churches today will say they're conservative. They say they believe the Bible. But a lot of what they say comes from these German liberals from the 1800s. 
So let's talk about some background to this. The Protestant reformers, Luther, Calvin, all the major reformers held to the inerrancy of the Bible. They held to the authority of the Bible. That it is God's word and it tells us what to believe and it tells us how to live. And it has that authority because it's God's word. And that it's without error. The original manuscripts are without error. We have enough manuscripts so we can make sure that we have God's word today and it's been copied properly even though the originals have passed away. And so God's word is without error. And we should take it literally as we interpret it, unless it tells us otherwise, unless it tells us that we should take it metaphorically or, or symbolically. Here's what Calvin said. Let us know that the true meaning of Scripture is the genuine and simple one, and let us embrace and hold it tightly. Let us boldly set aside as deadly corruptions those fictitious expositions which lead us away from the literal sense. The Catholic Church in the Middle Ages did this. They would say, well, yeah, there's the basic understanding of the Bible. That's when you just read it and understand what it says. But there are three other layers that we have helped you to understand through tradition. And so Calvin and Luther are moving away from that. And they're saying, look, we don't look to tradition. We don't look to the Pope. We don't look to councils. We don't look to so-called prophets. We look to Scripture as our authority. So they reject the teaching there of the Catholic Church and the allegorical school of origin. And they wanted to understand the authorial intent of the passage. But then something comes along called the Enlightenment. And the Enlightenment is a focus on man's own mind and ability and reason and, and rationality. And they're very skeptical. Skeptical especially of traditional truth claims that came before the Enlightenment. So the message of the Bible begins at that time to come under attack. Part of this is... Baruch Spinoza's rejection of inspiration. He's the first one to put it in writing. He's the first one to publish and be happy to teach it. That the Bible is not truly inspired by God and it does have errors. He, he, he rejects the inerrancy and inspiration of Scripture. According to him, the Bible ought to be evaluated and criticized like any other work. Before this time, people didn't like the Bible. They might reject the Bible. But they at least admitted it was from God and it had authority over their life. Now Spinoza is going to do something new and he's going to say we can stand outside instead of not under the Bible, but we can come alongside the Bible and criticize it. He was a Jewish, Dutch-Jewish philosopher and even the Jews excommunicate him for that because of his radical ideas. He rejects the idea of God taught in the Bible. And he instead said that God was an impersonal and abstract force, similar to nature. So this already is heretical to the Jewish community. But he introduces a skepticism that becomes very acceptable. This idea of criticizing the Bible. And that's going to further be defined by other scholars. I was recently listening to a biography on a, a critic. It would be a modern day Catholic critic of the Bible. And it was very interesting. I, I found this part interesting. He said, when I preach the word in churches, I don't like it because I'm under the word. I feel like I'm under the word and have to preach what it says and, and do what it says. But when I'm a scholar teaching in the university, I stand alongside the Bible and I feel more comfortable there because I can criticize it. And I thought, well, at least he's being honest about the feeling of being under the word when he's preaching. 
That is what the skeptics are trying to get away from. They don't want to be under the word. They want to look at it as any book that we would look at, any work of literature, and criticize it. There's Baruch Spinoza. So we fast forward now to 1700s, early 1800s, and we have the founder of modern Old Testament criticism. It starts with the Old Testament. There's going to be a skeptical look at the Old Testament and a really a doubting on whether it's true or not. And so this man is considered the founder of the, the movement to criticize the Old Testament. His ideas are going to be uh, later developed, or many of his ideas were developed by a, a previous person, Jean, Jean, I can never do the French. He concluded that Hebrew scriptures had passed through several authors and editors before coming to their final form. You will see this in most commentaries today that are middle of the road to liberal. They will say, you know, the Bible is a work that has passed through various people over time. And they've all worked on it and added their different additions into Scripture. He assumed that everything supernatural that was recorded in the Old Testament could be explained through naturalistic means. Yeah, Moses said he parted the Red Sea, but really it was just a wave that kind of came along and you know, made a, a walkway that they could walk across the pond there. He explained away miraculous events, concepts about God, simply accommodations to an ancient way of thinking. You know, that's chronological snobbery is what C.S. Lewis would call this. When people look back and say, you know, those ancient people were too dumb to know what was going on, so they believed anything. But today, since we've been enlightened, we can look back and see what really happened. He questioned the supposed authorship of a number of biblical books. That's the way liberals do it. Because authority is often tied to the author. And if you can question the author, which is why people go after Paul in the New Testament, if you can question Paul and say he didn't write First and Second Timothy, then you don't have to obey things in there, like I forbid a woman to teach or have authority over a man. And so First Timothy is attacked constantly today. He asserted that the synoptic gospels were based on an earlier Aramaic gospel. And this is a very sly way of getting around what the New Testament teaches, the gospels particularly, by saying, well, you know, it's actually written in Aramaic originally and uh, then later translated into Greek. What's the problem there? We don't have any Aramaic tran transcripts. And when you back translate something, you can do what you want with it. You can say, well, if, if you understand the New Testament in Aramaic, it actually means something else than what we've been taught. That's still common today. Then we come to the man that we can think, thank for all the emotionalism today, all the emotional movements in the church. The father of liberal theology, Friedrich, Friedrich Schleiermacher. He's also known as the father of modern Protestant theology. He starts out as a son of a, an army chaplain from the Reformed Church in Prussia. His own skepticism, though, during university continues to grow. He soon rejects the teaching of his father, the, the Orthodox Lutheran teaching. And uh, during this time, he is significantly influenced by Romanticism. Romanticism is a movement that's going on in literature at the time and in universities. And it focused more on, on feelings and experience. And so this leads him to emphasize emotion and feeling. So Christianity isn't so much the doctrinal teachings of the Bible as much as your own emotional feeling when you read the Bible. According to Schleiermacher, the essence of Christianity is not in the historical fact 
or even in the ethics, as far as what the Bible teaches us to do and, and the commands of Scripture. But it's in subjective feeling. Specifically, the consciousness of being absolutely dependent on God. So, in other words, don't analyze the Bible. Don't study the Bible for what it says and for what happened and for what God has, has done in the past. But as you read it, focus more on what it's doing to you in that moment. Your feelings, your emotions. It's very subjective. Instead of the objective truth. The objective truth is, this is what happened. This is how you should live. This is what you should believe. He says it's not so much that. It's more about your subjective feelings. He says faith is not based on doctrine. It's not based on reason. But upon man's feeling of absolute dependence. And he calls this a sense or a taste for the infinite. You'll notice after the Enlightenment, lots of words that sound very philosophical and sort of, you don't even know what they mean. A sense of taste of the infinite. Man, he argued, could never define or explain God. Only his own experience of the divine. And you'll hear this today as you're trying to talk to somebody about doctrine, about what's in the Bible. You know, we really can't understand God. I don't know why you're trying to work so hard at studying that text and trying to teach me doctrine. We're, we're so finite. And God is so infinite. This goes back to the words of Schleiermacher. And, and probably the people who say it today don't realize where that comes from. He says, church doctrines are primarily just articulations of religious feelings. Anything we believe just comes about because of feelings. Even the apostles. What they taught was based on their feelings. Christianity not as a faith with a unique monopoly on the truth. But it is simply the highest and the purest. Of the world's many religions. So there's a lot of skepticism in Germany at the time. What really upsets the, the German Christians is this idea that there are many good religions out there. And Christianity is just the best of the best. That upsets even the, the German Christians of his day. He skirts the question of Christ's divinity when asked what he believes. And he just says that Jesus is the completion of the creation of man. Liberal speak. Now we move on to Ferdinand Christian Bauer, around the same time. He's the head of the Tübingen School, or Tübingen School. And this becomes a liberal school that trains a lot of pastors. Even pastors in the 1800s from the U.S. will go over to the Tübingen School because they want to learn how to study the Bible in a critical fashion. Even some, some scholarly people that we might admire who end up rejecting the doctrine they learn in school, they still go over and study at the best of the best German school. He argues that the second century Christianity was really just a synthesis of Jewish Christianity, led by Peter. And on the other side, we had Paul, and he has an opposing version. And what we have today is just a mixture of that. So he followed along the lines of, of this philosopher named Hegel, who said you have the, the thesis and the antithesis, and the truth is somewhere in between. There's famous Christians today who do this. They, they choose a third way. It's not this side or that side. You know, it's, it's not no abortion or abortion. It's somewhere in between. It's a middle road. Well, that's what Bauer was saying. Christianity today is just a, a fight over Peter's religion and Paul's religion. And he even says Simon Magus in Acts was Paul. You didn't know it, but when you read Acts, Simon Magus is supposed to be Paul. And the Gospel of John was just invented. His radical views had great influence in their day, even though since then they've been discredited. So 
even though much of what these people will teach about their criticism of the Bible, later critics will say, oh, that's bunk. It doesn't work like that. It doesn't matter because they start the movement and it's continuing to go today. He's the head of the Tübingen School of Theology and uh, that's later changed to just a university. So not just seminary students, but everybody can come here and learn. Argue that second century Christianity, we already read that. Okay. Next guy, Strauss. David Friedrich Strauss, another German student under both Schleiermacher and this philosophy philosopher Hegel. He's a pioneer in the quest for the historical Jesus. So today this is still running, even though most have given it up. The historical Jesus, which is, we want to get back to the Jesus of history. The real Jesus, not the Jesus that the Bible changed our view of. But there was a man named Jesus, and we want to get back to that Jesus. And so they call him the historical Jesus. When I was growing up, there was this show that always came on. The Jesus, what was it called? The Jesus Movement? Anybody, John Dominic Crossan and these four scholars. Anybody know what I'm talking about? And they would interview them. And, you know, what, what is your view of the historical Jesus? And they would all get together and have these little conferences. And they would cut out all the verses of the Bible that they didn't like. And they would cast these little stones to vote for which parts of the Bible they should cut out. And eventually what was left over was almost nothing of the New Testament. And they said, there we see the historical Jesus. He argued that Christ's miracles were simply mythical accounts. He said the miracle stories in the Gospels were the conception of later Christians in the second century who imposed upon the historical Jesus their own supernatural conceptions of what the Messiah was supposed to be like. So really, Jesus was a man, he did great things, but all this miracle supernatural stuff, it's just the second century Christians who look back and invent that. Like the virgin birth, he says. That was the Christians in Rome. They invented it to honor Jesus in the way that Roman heroes were honored in ancient times. You made up stories about them. Julius Caesar becomes a god in, in Roman mythology because they're honoring him. This is an interesting intersection here with literature. George Eliot, which is actually the pen name of a woman named Mary Ann Evans. Anybody know what she wrote? Her most famous book is Middlemarch. And it's, some say it's greatest British literature, work of literature ever written. She is not a Christian. And she really wants to undermine Christianity in Britain. So what she does is get Strauss's work and she herself translates it from German to English. And makes sure it gets printed in England. Which then influences many Anglican pastors. A number of English theologians are now influenced by the German higher critics. So now this is moving from Germany to England, and it will soon come to America. The, one of the people that it influences is Benjamin Jowett, a Greek professor at Oxford. In 1853, he, he publishes a commentary on Paul's epistles. And Jowett is usually thought of as one of the first English scholars to take account of German criticism. The first liberal scholar who writes and speaks in English. Great influence at Oxford and into America. Jowett and six other Anglican uh, theologians published a book called Essays and Reviews, which is basically a manifesto of liberal theology. And there is a lot of liberal churches today. In our community, there are a lot of liberal churches. And they really go back to these German liberal scholars through the English ones that we're now looking at on this slide. Jowett and his six Anglicans undermined the authority and inerrancy of the Scriptures. They taught the Bible is just an ordinary book and should be approached like any other book. 
and that it could not be trusted as a scientific or historical textbook. We need to critique it like a work of literature. And you see this nowadays in departments of religion and public schools and such. The Bible can be looked at, but it should just be looked at as a literature work and not as a theological work. Even though the Church of England at this time was not liberal, they had 11,000 Anglicans come out against the book. The book would be, nonetheless, have a long-term impact on the English-speaking church. So we're going to see this week and next week how when these things first come out, they're rejected by the peers of the person who writes it. But it doesn't matter. It gets into the system and people start passing it around, reading it, and it grows in Christianity. About this time, Darwin's views come out in his published works. There you can see the origin of the species I've put up. Even conservative Christians like Charles Hodge in Princeton began to believe some of these. I'm sorry, he resisted it, but there were others like Hodge and Warfield. I mean, great men of the faith at Princeton who would accept some of the views of evolution. And right in such a way, if you read it today, you would think Warfield believed in evolution. Now, there's a debate how much you believed, how much you agreed and disagreed with Darwin. There are some things that that even Spurgeon says that people say, well, Spurgeon accepted evolutionary theory. I don't think he did, but he was at least, he was interacting with the terminology of his day. So you'll have to read all of Spurgeon works on your own. Figure that out. Anybody want to do that? That's a lot. 60 plus volumes of sermons. Now let's go back to Germany. Albert Rischel. Initially, he's influenced by others we've talked about here in the Tübingen School. In 1846, he publishes a work on the Gospel of Luke. And he says that it was actually based on the Gospel of Marcion. Anybody remember the Gospel of Marcion? What did Marcion do? Marcion was an early, early church heretic. And he said, I don't like the Jews, and I don't like the Jews being mentioned in the Bible. So away with the Old Testament. Okay, now he took the New Testament, and he said, any mention of the Jews... Cut that out. There goes Matthew, Mark, John, most of Paul's mentions of the Jews. Basically, what he had left was the Gospel of Luke because it's a book written to Gentiles. And of all the writers of the New Testament, Luke says the least about the Jews. And so what this man does, Ritual, is he goes back and he says, that's, that's where Luke came from. It just came from Marcion. He was influenced by a philosopher named Immanuel Kant and also by Schleiermacher. I heard a story once that, and somewhere I think I read it, where Charles Hodge goes to Germany and visits Schleiermacher. And he, he's heard all of these things about Schleiermacher's theology and how liberal it is. And he ends up going to Schleiermacher's home. And at his home, Schleiermacher leads his family and family worship. And supposedly Charles Hodge comes back to America and says, I think Schleiermacher is a good Christian theologian because he does family worship. Except all this stuff coming out in print and what he's teaching does not line up with the Bible. So I'll just say the early godly Princeton men struggled with some of the things coming out in their time. Like Schleiermacher, Rischel taught that the essence of Christianity is not in doctrine, it's not in creeds, it's not in historical ideas. But unlike him, he doesn't emphasize the emotions. He emphasizes the moral ethics. Really, Christianity is about ethics. His work, The Christian Doctrine of Justification and Reconciliation, 
set forth the tenets of the social gospel. It's not what you believe. It's not what you feel. But it's how you take care of the least of these, the poor people. And so now the, the social gospel gets started. It comes to America with an American follower of Rischel, and it's still alive and well today. The idea that Christianity is defined by what one does in society in terms of ethical conduct. You just need to live a good life, do well for others, help all this critical race theory and wokeism. Wherever there's poor people, our goal as a Christian is not to preach the gospel. It's to take care of the poor, the destitute, and those who are oppressed. The gospel is not about personal salvation from sin, he taught. But it's about redeeming society through social work. That's what a lot of times we don't get. The social gospel isn't about being saved by Christ through faith. It is about saving yourself through works. He, uh, he taught that the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man is what's taught in the Bible. The idea that God is everyone's father. And he, we're all brothers. And you'll hear men like Martin Lloyd-Jones really preach against this over and over. He'll say things like, you've heard that fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man, even in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, Lloyd-Jones is preaching still against these views that are very common in Britain in his day. Russell's teaching would have a major impact in America. Let's move to Wellhausen, Julius Wellhausen. Now we're getting up through the 1900s. He's a professor in different universities in, in Germany. He says that the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses, were not written by Moses, but they're a compilation. In fact, he says, they're composed by four different sources. Either one author or a group of men wrote these books over time. And so this is the dreaded thing that all seminarians hate to even study if you're conservative. But you have to study at least what they believe. The J-E-D-P hypothesis. You have the, the J, which is, we would say Yahweh, but the Germans say Jehovah. That's where we get the Jehovah from. That's the German attempt to pronounce Yahweh with the wrong letters, which goes back to some Hebrew stuff. But anyway, the Yahwistic. That's the stuff in there about Yahweh being the God of creation and power and of Israel. But then you have the, the E, the things of Elohim in Hebrew, the things just about God in general. That's all the mentions of God, not Yahweh, not the Lord, not Adonai, but just God in general. And that's more pagan. Then you have the, the Deuteronomistic, that's Deuteronomy. And he said, you know, Deuteronomy is all about law. It's not about Yahweh and Elohim. And then you have all the sacrifices. That must have been written by a priestly person. So you see how he's just ripping the Bible apart and being very critical of everything there. These various sources were then edited, he says, together by a redactor. Liberals love the word redactor. Whenever you're reading a commentary or hear somebody talk about redactor, your antenna better go up and, and your alarms better go off. Redactors. Redactors means they cut out things. So there's all these people, they threw it together, and then later people are chopping out things and inserting it together. They took scissors to the Bible. That's a redactor. His views are very dominant until the 20th century. And then liberals say, we got a better plan. So they jettison this idea. So we come up to Adolf von Harnack. He lives until 1930. He says, what is Christianity? That's his book that he writes. 
And he wants to peel back the layers. He thinks that Christianity is all about the Greek culture and it's all influenced by Greek culture. So let's strip off the Greek cultural ideas and we'll get back to really who Jesus was. And he said, there's a kernel of truth there somewhere. There's a kernel of truth and that's Christ. And so everything else, we've got to strip away. We've got to peel the onion to get to the center. He felt there was a great deal of added embellishments, even in the synoptics. All these miracles and angels, demons, apocalyptic elements. All these supernatural things can't be real, he said. And though the liberal views of Harnack and other Germans were very popular at his time, World War I will, will quickly evidence the emptiness of the shallow, culturally driven tenets of the power, powerless liberal gospel. They're going to go into war, and World War I is all about just shredding people with new technology and war, and trench warfare, and it's just going to show that this theology doesn't go very far, and there's nothing to it. But it does catch hold, continue here. Gunkel, Hermann Gunkel, considered the originator of form criticism. Form criticism assumes that the Bible is really a collection of various oral traditions. It's just a bunch of stories that somebody finally wrote down and put into a book. And so let's peel back the book and get to the original oral stories. And then I think this might be our last one here. Rudolf Bultmann. Rudolf Bultmann. Anytime people say they love Rudolf Bultmann, be careful of their teaching. This is the most modern of the list. He lives until 1976. He adopts Gunkel's form criticism. And in deconstructing the Gospels, now he's using a, a new form. He's going to deconstruct the Gospels. Demythologize. That's Boltman talk. If you read a commentary, hear somebody talk about demythologizing, taking the myth out of the Bible. That's Rudolf Boltman. He believed he's performing an evangelical task. This is a good thing. This is going to help us. We've got to get back to the real story here. We've got to allow people to see the true Jesus, not the Jesus of the Bible, but the true Jesus. In order to do that, he's going to peel back the layers of oral tradition that had been added to the gospel accounts. Through his radical application of form criticism, Boltman called the historical accuracy of all four gospels into serious question. Some of the most conservative commentaries I have on my bookshelf either agree with a lot of stuff Boltman taught or spend half the book trying to argue against him, which is a waste of time for me because I, I take the Bible for the true word of God, that it's inerrant, that it's authoritative. And while I'm glad somebody's out there debating these men, I don't really want to spend all of my time reading that in the commentary. And pastors joke about that. They'll talk about a guy out of Dallas Seminary wrote a two-volume set of Luke. And they said if you take out all the arguing that he does with these critics, you'd only have one volume to read. So here's a summary. Later, a man who was not 100% conservative, but he would critique these liberals. He said and summed up what they believe. Liberalism taught that a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. So they just stripped all the wrath, all the judgment, all the deity of Christ out of the gospel. And if you just look this quote up sometime and think about each phrase here, it's so true. So who are liberal churches today? Well, most of the mainline denominations. We'll look at that next week. The mainline denominations become liberal. The PCUSA becomes liberal. And so there are different people who split off and form new denominations in Presbyterianism. The uh, most, most Lutheran denominations today, there's a few that aren't. The 
United Church of Christ, United Methodists, various large mainline liberal denominations. These are the bad guys. We don't want to follow them. We want to reject what they taught because it's not true. Next week, we will look at how this now comes to America and causes a reaction with conservative Christians. And then those conservative Christians will divide and you'll end up with two camps in the conservative Christian camp, the fundamentalists and the new evangelicals. So I'm over time. Let's, let's pray and we'll pick up with our last class next week. Lord, we do thank you for keeping us saturated in your word. It is authoritative. It is the truth. And I pray, Lord, that we would be sanctified by the truth. Let us never try to pull out the supernatural elements. We're called to believe those. We're not called to critique the Bible. The Bible stands over us. We do not stand over your word. So help us, O oh Lord, to always desire to learn it, to grow in it, and to do what it says and believe what it says. We ask your help in this. Amen.